Psalm 116. If you would, because I love doing this, would you please stand for the reading of God's Word? Um, As I learned from my mentor and and great men before me, I would remind you that what what you have before you is the only infallible rule in faith and practice for the Christian life, that it is truth with no mixture of error. Psalm chapter 116. I love the Lord because He has heard my voice and my pleas for mercy. Because He inclined His ear to me, therefore I will call on Him as long as I live. The snares of death encompass me, the pangs of Sheol laid hold on me. I suffer distress and anguish. Then I called on the name of the Lord. O Lord, I pray, deliver my soul. Gracious is the Lord and righteous. Our God is merciful. The Lord preserves the simple. When I was brought low, He saved me. Return, O my soul, to your rest, for the Lord has dealt bountifully with you. For you have delivered my soul from death, my eyes from tears, my feet from stumbling, and I will walk before the Lord in the land of the living. I believed even when I spoke, I am greatly afflicted. I said in my alarm, all mankind are liars. What shall I render to the Lord for all His benefits to me? I will lift up the cup of salvation and call on the name of the Lord. I will pay my vows to the Lord in the presence of all His people. Precious in the sight of the Lord is the death of His saints. O Lord, I am Your servant. I am Your servant, the son of Your maidservant. You have loosed my bonds. I will offer to You the sacrifice of thanksgiving and call on the name of the Lord. I will pay my vows to the Lord in the presence of all His people, in the courts of the house of the Lord, in in Your midst, O Jerusalem. Praise the Lord. Let's pray together. Father, we come this, this evening celebrating the goodness uh, of the Scriptures, Lord, knowing that in them, Lord, not in the authority of men, not in the authority of, uh, of, of, of clever arguments or in philosophies, Lord, but according to the authority of Your Word, we know that Your Word accomplishes its purpose. We know that Your, your Word is that which is able to sanctify and to make us equipped for every good work. And so, Father, I ask You this evening, would You, by Your grace, apply these truths to Your saints? Lord, would You, as we walk through this passage, would You remind us of Your goodness? Would You remind us of Your salvation? And would You remind us of the sure, sure ground you have placed our feet. Uh, It is in the name of Jesus and through his precious blood we pray. Amen. You may be seated. This is a rather interesting psalm. Most of them, if you haven't, I'm sure you have noticed over the uh, your own personal time in reading the Psalms, or perhaps even over the past couple of years of you walking through this glorious book of the Bible, um, you've noticed that most Psalms have a connection to something that's occurred more often than not in the life of David, but perhaps in various uh, biblical authors in their lives. And in this particular text, it's an interesting one because we don't have any immediate context. Um, as you think about passages like Psalm 50, uh, Psalm 51, you see David in particularly repenting of his sin over his sin with Bathsheba. And you see those things linked together, but this one is a bit more ambiguous. It doesn't really give us an exact moment in David's life, which can make it difficult to interpret the psalm. But I would argue that what we have before us is perhaps one of the most, uh, one of the most obvious and frequent occurrences in the life of saints. And the occurrence that we're looking at here is simply trials and tribulation. I mean, when we come and when we are going through difficult trials and tribulations, there is no telling exactly what that will do with our emotional state. There's really no telling what it will do with our spiritual life. But, should, but we know for certain that should you be in Christ... I mean, that's going to be interesting. I'm going to have so much fun with this with Derek, y'all. I mean, <laughs> I haven't been preaching long, but my guess is that is the first and last time that will ever happen to me. Um, <laughs> all right, I think, I, think, I think we're good. So after I recover from that... Um, <laughs> You know, it's, when, you, when you go from something is, is, is with, with weight of suffering in the saint's life to whatever just happened, hold on, let me recuperate. All right, so um, <laughs> the immediate context of this passage is the, su- is the suffering of a saint. Now, we don't know who it is. We don't know if it's David, but I think that we can all make the application to our own immediate life. And I think a lot of times when we have them being void of those um, moments in someone's life, it's reasonable for us to take that passage and say, well, how does this apply to me? 
You know, it, how is it that this particular passage, how is it that the psalmist, as he is pinning, is pinning the words of God that is meant to be a means of encouragement and edification for my soul? And we would do well to remember, as we often do, and as you hear probably still said every Lord's Day, that what we have in the Scriptures is the only infallible rule of faith and practice for the Christian life. When we come to the Scriptures, we want to come to them asking, pleading with the Lord, Lord, help me see what this text means. Help me see what the, what, what, what the Holy Spirit inspired, that we can see this and clearly understand it so that we can apply it to our life with confidence. Because remember, we can take passages and pull them out of context all we want to and aim to apply them to our life, but if it's not with the Holy Spirit inspired, then ultimately what we're doing is applying to our lives a lie. What we need to do as we come to this passage is ask the question, what is the Spirit of God saying? What is the psalmist, as he's pinning, aiming for us to grasp and understand? And so what I would like to do is break this passage up into four major categories. I think we see this very clearly, but to just give you the four, because I am the worst and did not give you a handout, um, the first point is the trial in life. The trial in life. And we'll see that in particularly in verses 3 and 4 and 10 and 11. You'll notice that we're not starting with verse 1 and there's an intention behind that. But as we look at this passage, I want you to see a couple of things that's go, that are going on in the minds or in the mind of the writer. Listen to verses 3 and 4. The snares of death encompass me. The pangs of Sheol laid hold on me. I suffered distress and anguish. Then jump over to verse 10 and 11 and it says, I believed even when I spoke, I am greatly afflicted. I said in my alarm, all mankind are liars. We can all agree that this seems to be a pretty dark moment in the writer's life. I mean, to just break apart verse 3, snares of death encompass me, pangs of Sheol laid hold on me. I suffered distress in my anguish. So let's just take this apart for just a minute and consider perhaps what's occurring in the life of the writer. And at bare minimum, we can grasp certain things that occur in our own life and how we should deal with them. So if we look at this, the snares of death encompass me. And it's interesting here, and I think that should we apply this to David, I can't imagine how often David looked death in the face. Or any of the other psalmists who wrote, it's very likely that this was something they saw regularly. Or perhaps it was even that they were going through a period of illness. Perhaps it is that they find themselves laying on their deathbed or what they presume to be their deathbed. And they presume from this that death is certain. That not only is death certain, but it is imminent. It is something that is always coming, that it's always on the horizon. Always. And we would do well to remember that. When you come to this and we look at this certainty, this trial in life, he is saying that death is something that is ever before me. It is certain. Snares of death encompass me. The same language is used in Genesis chapter 22 when it says dogs and bulls of Bashan encompass me. This is Christ making reference to the Gentiles around him, aiming to put him to death. These Gentiles that would indeed nail him to the cross that would, that where he would atone for our sin. This is the language that this writer is using. This idea of death encompassing me is the idea that it is actually on its way. Now, this is not obviously the most encouraging portion of the text. But we would do well to remember this, that not a single moment, not a single breath is guaranteed to us. And as this psalmist is looking at this and he says, the snares of death encompass me, brothers and sisters, that is always true for us. It is always true for us. That's why James warns us against being so arrogant to say, I'm going to do this tomorrow. You have no authority to say what you're doing tomorrow. That's the reason that perhaps you've heard men or women say, Lord willing. We would all be so wise to operate in that capacity. Death is actually on the horizon for each and every soul. We are indeed mere mortals. But the beauty of this is what it leads him to. So the first thing that we see is there is indeed a certainty of death on the horizon. There is something that is coming for him and it cannot be broken seemingly in his mind. It goes on to say, the pangs of Sheol laid hold on me. Now, I can't do a full um, a discussion on what Sheol is, but essentially it is that holding place or place of torment that we see in the Old Testament. We see David say, I will go to Sheol. It is oftentimes in reference to a place of of paradise. When Jesus looks at the thief on the cross, he says, today you will be with me, with, with, with me in paradise. This is what he's making reference to. And then after the resurrection, he will take them all and they will dwell eternally with the Father. But that not only was Sheol a place of paradise, a holding place, but it was also a place of torment. Now we would all do well to remember this as well. I can't tell you how frequently I hear men begin to compromise on the doctrine of hell. But when this writer is saying this, 
Not only does he realize that death is imminent, he realizes that Sheol is a reality. That Sheol is a reality. It is not something that can be put away, that can be cast aside. And perhaps he is writing about this in a positive sense, knowing that there is an eternal reward for those who have pursued Christ, those who have been ransomed by the blood of Jesus. But we should not be so quick, perhaps, to gloss over this. The reality is that apart from Christ, every single soul will die actually twice. Twice. I, mean, I want you to feel the gravity of that for just a minute. We say things like, you only live once. We say things like, well, there is, death certainly is on the horizon, but we must come to a full and biblical understanding of what death actually is. If we could correct one thing in Christendom, if we could correct one thing in American Christianity, I would hope that it would be to redefine or biblically define death because it needs to be defined in an accurate biblical fashion. We have always, over the, at least over the expanse of my lifetime, though it be short, dis- discussed death as the ceasing to exist. We have bought into atheism. That is not the biblical language. Death, separation, that is the biblical terminology that when one dies, it is the idea of separation, body from soul. But the author here is saying death has encompassed me. It is something that has a hold on me. And then he goes on to elaborate, the pangs of Sheol laid hold on me. And unless something would break that bondage, we will die not once but twice. Our bodies will indeed be separated from our souls. But lastly, and the true and far worse death, our souls will be separated eternally from Christ. This is true death. The, the physical, the body being separated from the soul is but a shadow. It's not the true punishment. It's not the true repercussion for sin. The true repercussion for sin is that there is a separation between you and your God and your iniquity has hid His face from you, as the prophet Isaiah says. That is what death is. And as you see him elaborate on these things, as you see him consider these, you see the natural repercussion for this. And I want you to hear his language. I suffered distress and anguish. This is the appropriate attitude toward this horrendous thought. The snares of death encompassed me. The pangs of Sheol laid hold on me. And immediately you see him say, I suffered distress and anguish. How can we not suffer distress and anguish over this? And if I could for just a moment, perhaps it'd be necessary for you to ask the question of your own soul. Perhaps it is that you have come in here tonight and you do not know the Lord Jesus. I would plead with you, see the eternal fate that is before you should you not repent and trust Christ. If you do not turn to Christ, then indeed, very clearly, the snares of death have encompassed you. There is only one that can break that barrier. His name is Jesus. The only means by which the pangs of Sheol can be broken, that you will know, it will no longer be something that is binding to you, should a better master buy you. And thus, we must look to Christ as the only remedy. And if there is no anguish in your soul over your eternal fate, brothers, I don't know what to tell you. It perhaps is because we have forgotten to preach these doctrines of judgment and wrath, but they are ever-present in the Scriptures. I just finished reading through the Gospels, and I can't tell you how frequently I hear the Lord Jesus say to His people or those within earshot, away from me, into the place of darkness and gnashing of teeth. He is not joking in regard to His wrath and fury. God will not be mocked. There is no rejection of Christ. There is no sin that will not be punished. And we must be wise to that. We must know that. And then in light of those horrendous, difficult, painful truths, we must look to Christ as the remedy for sin. And so, as you see this, He suffers distress and anguish. But not only would I encourage us to consider our own lives, perhaps it would be necessary for us to consider those whom we come in contact with daily who do not know the Lord. Leonard Ravenhill, perhaps one of the greatest just evangelists of the last hundred years, I'll never forget a sermon that I heard from him, and it was over the doctrine of anguish. And the major argument here is that Christians have forgotten how to anguish. And because Christians have forgotten how to anguish, because they don't believe that death encompasses their loved ones, they don't genuinely believe that Sheol has indeed laid hold of them. They do not anguish for their souls. And I would ask you perhaps this evening, when was the last time you had anguish in your soul over your lost friends and family? When was the last time that it made you weep? When was the last time it made you bow your knee in prayer and fervently plead that God would rescue them? This is the anguish that, is, that we're... Can you imagine actually feeling that? 
actually tasting and believing when the Lord Jesus says that those who have rejected Him, that those who are not in Him will be cast away, should we actually believe those? Will that not encourage our prayers to ever constantly go before the throne of God for those whom we love? It is the anguish of the soul. Death is indeed a reality, and that is which this man is, is, is pondering. But then he goes on, and he says this in verses 10 and 11. And I love the language here because it's this glimmer of hope mixed in with his almost repentant attitude toward what he has previously said and experienced. Listen to what he says. I believed even when I spoke, I am greatly afflicted. He is almost saying in this, I'm not actually greatly afflicted. And perhaps we would do well to remember that the afflictions that we endure here are not actually really genuinely difficult afflictions. I love what Paul says in this. I do not consider the present sufferings worthy to be compared to the future glories. Have you ever considered the fact that should you go through a period of affliction, even if it be for the entirety of your life, perhaps it is that you, from the moment of your birth to the moment of your death, have gone through some great trial and tribulation, and you die. And at your death, you look in the face of Christ, and you realize that in that moment, you were not greatly afflicted. Because it was brief. It was incredibly brief, as a matter of fact. And perhaps it is that as we look at these things and as we consider the tribulations, we would be as wise as this man who says, I believe even when I spoke, and he's recollecting that this is not actually true, I am greatly afflicted. And perhaps it be that to do this, to remedy this, we should look to our Lord. Let's discuss affliction for a minute. What is affliction really? When Christ Jesus, the perfect spotless Lamb of God, would come, dwell 33 years, be rejected by His own people, that even though He created the world and the world was made through Him, and even during this time of suffering and difficulty, He is currently upholding the universe by the word of His power. That in the midst of Him being crucified, He is giving breath to the men who are crucifying Him. And not only is He giving Him breath, He is saying to Himself, saying to those around, forgive them, Lord all the while being afflicted. And not only do we look at the affliction that is there, that, that cross of Christ that we often look at and we say to it, man, what a difficult and physical labor that is. As we should. Certainly, crucifixion is the most gruesome, I would argue, of all executions. But no one ever died like Christ. Do not be fooled into thinking that the cross on His left or the, cross on his, or the, the, the thief on His left and the thief on His right suffered the same way He did. It is not a reality. And as a matter of fact, all the times we major on Christ's physical death, I find that we often rob the true glories of the cross. That in those three hours of darkness, He drank the cup of God's wrath in full. That, that is anguish. That is suffering. That is affliction. That is where we look to say, our Lord drank the cup of wrath. And so whatever the Lord has seen fit for me to endure in my day, I will count it as joy because it is not an affliction, because I have Christ. This is why Paul writes in Philippians 4.13, even though it is incredibly abused, I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. It is not that he is encouraging you to do some miraculous task. He is saying that you can endure all things, for you have Christ. That is what it means to go through affliction as a Christian. That is the beauty of this just brief statement in verses 10 and 11. He is saying, I believed... Even amidst my own sin, even amidst saying I am greatly afflicted, I believed all the more that there was something better. That even though I said these things in my sin, I still knew in the depths of my heart that these things are not true. And I want you to notice exactly what happens here because I think one of the sweetest ways that we can counteract going through difficult trials and tribulations, and when I say counteract, I don't mean that they will be reversed on the spot. I'm saying it is a means of enduring. Notice what the psalmist does here. He goes immediately from talking about the trial in life to discussing the person of God. One of the most overlooked and under-discussed doctrines is looking at the actual person of God. You have heard it said, I'm most certain, that you have heard it said, when you cannot see the hand of God, trust the person of God, or trust the face of God. Well, to do that, we must actually look to the person of God. Not a figment of our imagination, not something that we have crafted for ourselves. More often than not, a Jesus that looks remarkably like us. But when we look at the person of God as revealed in the Holy Scriptures, it does indeed bring us great comfort. Notice what the text says here. So if we jump over to verse 5, it says this, Gracious is the Lord. Just pause right there. Let's remember where this man is. 
This is the man who has just said, the snares of death encompass me, the pangs of Sheol laid hold of me. I suffer distress and anguish. Then you see him call out to the name of the Lord, O Lord, I pray, deliver my soul. And immediately what he does is meditate on the graciousness of the Lord. The graciousness. What does that mean? What is grace? What is the graciousness of God? Should we take all the Scriptures and compile them, we will see that it is the idea of an unmerited favor, an an endless benevolence. When we talk about the God of Scriptures, we must understand that He is indeed the omnibenevolent God. He is always good. He even gives good gifts to wicked men. But this individual is claiming that this, he is actually in Christ. We see, him, we see him plead to the Lord, would you deliver me? This is a sign of a true and genuine faith. In the midst of all the distress of his soul, he pleads out to God to rescue him. And then he begins to resound, gracious is the Lord. This is the cry of every saint in suffering. This is the cry of every saint in suffering. Can I ask you a question? When was the last time you encountered someone that was going through perhaps a difficulty that you think to yourself, and we all do this, I could never endure that. I could never endure that. And you hear them on their lips, the praise of Christ. Perhaps it is that you have a friend who loves the Lord Jesus and has just been diagnosed with a stage 3 cancer. Or perhaps it is you have one whose child has just been killed in a tragic accident. And you think to yourself, I can never possibly endure this. And you hear them say, but gracious is the Lord. Is that not the truest time you've ever heard those words? Is that not the most impactful moment when you hear one who has gone through seemingly the deepest possible pain and they cry out, gracious is the Lord. This is what a saint looks like. A saint looks at the things that the Lord has given And do not be mistaken, there is no trial or tribulation that did not originate from the Lord. We we would do well to look at those things and call them gifts. Because on the hills of them, we not only are sanctified, but we get to see the goodness of God. Gracious is the Lord. And then he immediately progresses on to another attribute, and righteous. How often is it that we can look to the God uh, that, that we love, the God that offered up Christ for our salvation and look to Him in the midst of deepest possible pain and question His motives? Brothers, He is righteous. There is nothing that He does that is not eternally good. Anything, hear me when I say this, anything that God does is by nature good. It is not the other way around. It is not as though we look to God and say, you must bow to our definition of good. If He does it, if it is something that He enacts, then it is by nature good. For the God of goodness, the measure, the, the, the one that by which we measure all things, whether they be good or evil, is the one that enacted them. Thus, it is good. Do not be fooled into thinking that something that the Lord has put in your path is something other than good. It is the Lord who brought it about. It is good. He is righteous. Everything that He does is perfectly righteous. And this is what is comforting this man amidst being encompassed by death and laid hold of by Sheol. That in the midst of the anguish of his soul, he says, God is gracious, He is righteous. And then he goes on to say, our God is merciful. And this is where we have the grand privilege to look to our Lord. There is nothing, there is nothing that comforts the saint like looking to Christ who is indeed our faithful and merciful high priest. When we look to Him, when we look and see His goodness, His kindness, when we see that He actually did suffer for those 33 years, that as He was here, like us in every way, apart from sin, the perfect sinless Lamb of God, fulfilling all righteousness, that when we look to God, we look to one who is indeed our high priest, a merciful and faithful high priest who knows us intimately, not only in the fact that he is omniscient, thus knowing everything about us, but even past that, that he became incarnate to dwell among us, that he knows us not only in the fact that he is omniscient, but that he knows us experientially. He knows our infirmities and our weakness. We have this idea so often of a Christ who is not truly God and truly man, but a Christ who is simply superman. He is not. That is not the teaching of any form of true Christendom. The biblical idea of Christ, as we look to Him, He is truly God. He is truly man. And when we see Him go through life, He went through life as a true man. We look to Him as our faithful and merciful high priest because He knows us in every way. He is our, as the Scripture says, our elder brother. 
And we look to Him. And thus this man is saying He is merciful. He's merciful and good. And out of all these things, we see that not only is He all of these, He's gracious and righteous. The hope of this man who is going through this great trial of life. Listen to what the text says in verse 6. The Lord preserves the simple. When I was brought low, He saved me. I can think of no better thing to be than to be simple. I want you to notice the language here. Simple carries the weight of um, even being a bit foolish, as is translated in Proverbs, but more frequently than not, it's translated weak. We live in a society where weak is not the best thing to be, but brothers and sisters, Christianity screams, be weak, brother. Be weak and cast yourself on Christ. This man knows that as these snares of death are encompassing him, he is weak. There's nothing that he can do to break these bonds. When he considers the eternal fate that is awaiting him, he realizes full well, I am weak. Oh, how the saint should boast in his weakness. When we look at passages like 1 Corinthians 10, we see Paul do it and do it well. I will boast all the more gladly in my weakness that Christ's power may rest upon me. What a sweet thing to be is weak because not only is it good that we can look to Christ and find in Him strength, not even find in Him strength, not as though it is attributed to us, but instead we see His power and might to rescue the lowest and the weakest of people. But should you look at it full well, you'll see the Lord preserves the simple. Not only that, when I was brought low, He saved me. Who is it that the Lord Jesus saves? The men who would stand before Him on the day of judgment and present their good deeds. Not them. The men who would stand before and exercise their own strength, perhaps it is to their last breath, they are convinced that they can preserve their own life. Brothers and sisters, those are not the ones that Christ saves. Christ saves the simple. Christ saves the ones who are brought low. Oh, how we would rejoice in that. Because the reality is, whether men accept it or not, we are all creatures. Not only are we all creatures, we are creatures that have rebelled against the holiness of God, and He is indeed righteous, meaning that His justice will be perfectly executed, and it will not be done so in partiality. He will execute justice perfectly. And thus, only those who have repented and trusted Christ who have looked to Him and say, Lord, I am weak, rescue me. When he realizes his state before God and realizes that there is nowhere better for him than on his face before the holy God, those are the ones we see repent and trust Christ. And so, as you look at this, we see the goodness of God, His righteousness, His graciousness, and ultimately His mercy. But lastly, we see His power to save and always to save the simple and the weak. But the beauty is that He saves them unto something. Return, O my soul, to your rest. To your rest. When we think about rest, immediately perhaps our, our, we, I mean, we can do a whole theology as we walk through the idea of rest starting in, Genesis, um, starting in Genesis chapter 1 where we see the Lord create and on the Lord's day He rests. And then progressively we see the idea of a Sabbath and it goes further and further and further ultimately finding its conclusion in the expanse of eternity where we enter into rest throughout all of eternity. We dwell with Christ forevermore. But the joy of the rest that is mentioned here is we always, for some reason, take this to mean something that is, that is, that is represented here. But in actuality, the idea of being restored to your rest is actually being restored unto God. Brothers and sisters, God is your rest. Christ is your rest. It cannot be found anywhere else. The beauty of this is just right directly on the heels of He preserves the simple. And when I was brought low, He saved me. Enter into your rest. He's saying in the midst of my weakness, in the midst of my frailty, I turned to the Lord. The Lord rescued me. And now from this point forward, I'm in Him. He is my rest. Jesus is the fulfillment of the Sabbath. The reason that we celebrate that, the reason we see Jesus amidst His earthly ministry tell His people to eat and and, and enjoy Him on the Sabbath day, unlike all of the other disciples during that day, is because Jesus, the rest that they had been longing and waiting for, had arrived. And they were able to rest in Him. And so the reason I bring that to your attention is because perhaps it is that we go throughout our days all the while trying to make ourselves more righteous before God. Perhaps it is that we think that we can contribute something to our salvation. Brothers and sisters, this is a direct a direct opposition against Christ who is your rest. All the labor that we would do is looking at the one who is our rest and saying, eh, I'd rather labor. 
I'd rather work. I'd rather not be the simple one or the lowly one. But the one who is simple, the one who is lowly, the one who will gladly look to Christ as his Redeemer, as the one who would rescue him, will find perfect rest in Christ. The beauty of this phrase is that from this point forward, he's saying, Return, O my soul, to your rest, for the Lord has dealt bountifully with you. He gets to enter into his rest. And in this rest, he will never, ever leave. The rest of the saint is eternal. The rest of the saint is not something that we look forward to or wait for, certainly to some degree, when we get to rest from sin's presence forevermore. But brothers and sisters, the rest that we have is in Christ today. When was the last time you paused, perhaps even to just sigh a sweet sigh of relief, knowing that Christ is your rest? Your labor is done. To borrow from Jonathan Edwards, the only thing that you contribute to your sin, you contribute to salvation, is the sin that made it necessary. Stop it. Stop trying to labor for your salvation. Rest in Christ. Enjoy the good and perfect gift that He has purchased from you in Christ. Rest there. And He says, I've come back in. But let's just for a moment talk about the salvation that God has indeed provided. Notice what we find in verses 8 through 9. This is a complete salvation. It says, For you have delivered my soul from death my eyes from tears, my feet from stumbling, and I will walk before the Lord in the land of the living. Well, the first thing that we see that the Lord saves from, for you have delivered my soul from death. Let's ask the question, how? How is it the Lord delivers from death? Well, John Owen writes this incredible book called The Death of Death and the Death of Christ. The reason that we can look to this passage, the reason that we have a full understanding is because of the clear revelation of Scripture that says Christ killed death through death. That when He took the cross, when He laid down His life on our behalf, when He died as our substitute on the cross, brothers and sisters, you died there. This is so important for us to understand. We have this idea that perhaps the death that Christ died was not actually a substitutionary death because we want to divorce ourselves from it. We want to just separate ourselves just a little bit from the cross of Christ. Brothers and sisters, if you have trusted in Christ, that means that you died at the cross of Christ. That when Christ died on the cross, He took your sin and His body on the tree that you yourself might die to sin and live to righteousness. Sin always gives birth to death. Christ paid for sin in full. Therefore, death is dead to the saint. It cannot be had from you. And that's why it's so important for us to clearly define death. It is not the idea of you ceasing to be. It is the idea of you being separated from your Lord. It cannot be done for those who have been purchased by the blood of Christ. There is no means of separation. Should any separation come between you and the Lord? As a matter of fact, Romans 8 develops this whole idea that there's nothing that can separate you from the love of God. Why? Because you are in Christ. And if you are in Christ, nothing will separate the Father from the Son. You are in Him. One of the things that we've been preaching through over the last couple of weeks at Mercy Hill is what is the local church? And I'm telling you, brothers and sisters, we must delight in the fact that we are not simply Christians. That's the term that we use, but the Scripture makes a different terminology, one that I vastly prefer. We are in Christ. We are in Christ. Do you even understand the magnitude of that? In His death, we were there. In His resurrection, we were there. When all of eternity begins to unfold, we will be there because we are in Christ, united with Him in a death like His. Thus, we will be united with Him in a life like His. The reason that this great saint that repents this can say, for you have delivered my soul from death is because he looks forward to the one who will ultimately pay death in full, that it can no longer have any snare over the saint. It's been broken. It's actually been broken. The salvation that Christ has provided for us has indeed delivered our soul from death and immediately, immediately brought us into life. The beauty of being being delivered from death is that now we have life. This is where our other definition is so important. What is life? Well, we don't have to define that for ourselves. John does it. John says, or actually, as a matter of fact, Jesus does it. This is life, that you know the Son and then the Father who sent Him. This is life. You have been delivered from death, but we often forget that when we are delivered from something, we are delivered to something. When you were delivered from death, that separation between you and God was completely and totally destroyed, and now you live because you know Christ. That is life. And he says, this has been dealt with. You have been delivered from death. But it goes on to say, my eyes from tears, my feet from stumbling. 
you know, we look at this and, and, and we, we oftentimes find ourselves perhaps still dealing with the repercussions of our sinful life. Perhaps it is that we even deal with a little bit of insecurity in our faith. Perhaps it is that we think that maybe one day Christ will forsake us because, all of, because in reality we are still not so good. This is where we look back and we see that Christ is indeed our rest. But brothers and sisters, I don't think I'm, in, uh, I'm alone when I say that there are moments in my life when I think to myself, there's no way I'm in Christ. Oh, my sin abounds. My affections are slow and weak. So how is it like this? How can, we, how can my eyes be wiped? How can all the tears that perhaps are wept over my sin or wept over my, my lack of affection for Christ or the fact that I have perhaps been disobedient in that day, how can those things be wiped away? They're wiped away by the, th- by the same thing that wiped away death, by the finished work of Christ. It is only through His finished work that the eyes can actually be cleared. That when those tears perhaps begin to roll, this is where we are reminded to preach the gospel to ourselves, to hear the good news of Christ and see, how can I weep? How can I weep? I have Christ. He is good. He is faithful and He will never forsake me. He has reminded me of that in His Word time and time again. Not only in His Word, but throughout my life I have seen and tasted His goodness. It has caused me to soar amidst the most difficult circumstances. It's caused me to admit the anguish of my soul, say, Christ is better that those things are the means by which God would wipe away every tear from our eyes. And should you perhaps think that, that your tears will not be wiped away here, brothers and sisters, you get to rest for sure knowing that in eternity they will be. He will wipe away every tear from our eyes. That's the clear teaching of Scripture. That's not an opinion. That's not a thought. That's a reality. That all of these things will fade away. But perhaps the sweetest thing that he says here is that he will protect our feet from stumbling. Oh, how we are prone to stumble. This is a point of illustration. I, I live in, I have lived with a limp for the vast majority of my life, and I find myself tripping as frequently as, as I walk. And I'm telling you, this verse comes to mind every time. Oh, how He will protect us from stumbling. Because, brothers and sisters, should you fall, should you stumble, it matters not. You are as Noah is. Perhaps it is that you stumble, that you trip, and you fall. But brothers and sisters, Noah very likely probably did trip and fall in the days of the ark. But he could never fall out. He could never fall out. He was placed in that ark. The Lord closed the door behind him and he was safe and secure. That ark was meant to preserve him from the wrath of God that was coming. Brothers and sisters, the cross of Christ is our better ark. Should we think to ourselves, I'm stumbling, I'm falling. Know that should you fall, you fall in Christ. And you are just as secure as Noah was inside that ark. But the beauty is that it's not only that He prevents our feet from stumbling. It says this, I will walk before the Lord in the land of the living. That the salvation that He has provided for us is not a weak one, but it is a complete one. The salvation that Christ has provided for us does not only secure us for a time. It is not something that we must, for some reason, frequently go back and ask the Lord, Lord, would you save me? Lord, would you save me? Lord, would you save me? Brothers and sisters, if Christ has saved you, then you are secure. And as He prevents your eyes from watering with tears of affliction, and as He prevents you from stumbling, He has also secured that you will walk before the Lord in the land of the living. Imagine this. This land of the living is not like the land of Eden. I think so often we reflect back, we look back and we think to ourselves, oh, if only we were in the garden again. Or perhaps we are so, in, so fooled into thinking that the eternity that is before us will be like the garden. It won't be. It won't be. We have gained more through the second Adam than we lost with the first. What Adam fell when sin entered into the world, Christ has remedied above and beyond all that we entered into. The ground that you will stand on in the expanse of eternity is not ground that is given to shaking or breaking. When you walk before the Lord in eternity, you walk there based on the finished work of Christ. It is not based upon your ability to keep the law in eternity because, brothers and sisters, if it were, then there would be no security of salvation. But we stand and we walk before the Lord, not on our own merit, but on the perfect, meritorious righteousness of Christ. We walk in the land of the living because Christ has indeed perfectly fulfilled the law. And by His grace, He has credited credited that to us. That's why we know that it's not a if statement when we stand before God. Oh, Lord, would we hear you say, well done, my good and faithful servant. Brothers and sisters, do you think Christ heard that? If Christ has heard that, Romans 8 says we are heirs of God and co-heirs with Christ. The salvation that Christ provided is a salvation that essentially guarantees that you will stand before God and hear, well done, my good and faithful servant. 
Not based on our deeds or our works. Not, not like Adam who had to work to make sure that he could stay inside the covenant. We walk into the gates of eternity by the finished work of Christ, a true and better covenant. And He has indeed provided us a perfect salvation that has a perfect end of dwelling eternally with Him. Now, that would lead us to ask the question because I think we can find ourselves prone to the idea that, well, how then do we respond? I mean, if, 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 if our righteousness, if our good works essentially adds nothing to our salvation, do we, does it even matter then how we live? And I would say that it matters all the more how you live. If Christ has has provided for you perfect righteousness, there's no means for you to selfishly work up your good deeds. Instead, how is it then that we labor? We labor as ones who has, by God's grace, He has laid out works for us and we want to walk in them faithfully because we have a good and faithful high priest, a merciful and righteous and gracious God that we love. That we love. And so I want you to look back to verse 1 just for a moment. How is it that we respond to the the salvation that God has provided for us? Listen to the language here. This is his response. Even as he's going into the statement, as he's pinning this in response to what's going on in his life, listen to the first thing he says, I love the Lord. There's no better word to be had here. He could fill this with an endless list of things that he had done. He could say, I want to obey the Lord. I have an affection for the Lord. He says, I love the Lord. This is the immediate response to salvation that Christ has provided for you. Brothers and sisters, if you have no affection for Christ, if you do not love the God that is written about, that is praised, that is worshipped, that perhaps it is you come on the Lord's Day and you're trying to figure out why everyone is so enthralled with the majesty of God, the answer is because they love Him. And if you do not have a love for Him, then you do not know Him. You don't. There is no means of you meeting and knowing the holy, righteous God, having Him revealed in Christ without an affection being birthed in you. It is an impossibility. It is an impossibility. And hear me when I say this because I want to make sure it's incredibly exclusive. It is an impossibility. There is no soul that has been ransomed by the blood of Christ that does not love Him. None. We know this very clearly. John, in his first epistle, essentially does everything he can to make it clear that if you've been purchased by Christ, you love Him. And not only do you love Him, you love all those who are His. There's no excuse. There's no means of saying, I know Christ, He bought me, without your soul swelling and and giving out praise and, and worship to the God who rescued you, and it's born of affection. It's born of love. And it's important then, again, that we remember where our love originates from. We know this scripture, don't we? We love because He first loved us. This is this psalmist meditating on the way that God had loved him and thus given birth to love for God. It did not originate in him. He loves the Lord because God had done something mighty in his life. The natural disposition of man is not to love Christ. It's to love self. And amidst the glories that he lays out in the midst of saying death and sheol and distress and anguish are all over me god has delivered and now in my soul there is love there is love he said i love the lord because he has heard my voice and my pleas for mercy because he inclined his ear to me therefore i will call on him as long as i live so how is it that we respond first and foremost we love the lord and for some reason we have removed this affection from christianity perhaps it is that we have gotten to the position where we like the knowledge of god or perhaps it is that we simply like the moralisms that god would give to us but love is the mark of the christian Love is the mark of the Christian. Should you want to check whether you are in Christ and not check your affection for Him? Should you perhaps feel as though your affection is not so great, simply ask yourself the question, is there any affection at all? Because there is no affection for Christ in one who has rejected Him. There is no affection for Christ in one who has not been saved by the finished work of Christ. And so we see that this love is meant to be the true, the true measure of your faith. Do you love the Lord? But there is a response to that love. In verse 12, it goes on to say this, What shall I render to the Lord for all His benefits to me? What should I, how should I respond to this? How should I react to the salvation that Christ has indeed provided for me? And he goes on to say this, I will lift up the cup of salvation and call on the name of the Lord. Isn't that an interesting response? The obedience here is finding your rest in Christ. The obedience here is saying, I will lift up the cup of salvation. I will exalt Christ for the salvation that He has provided for me. The response is worship. 
The response is glad and, 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 and enthralled worship of the God who rescued you. One of the most important things about the Lord's Day, I'm speaking obviously of Sunday, but as we, as we discuss those things, as we think about the Lord's Day, we have taken it and made it something that it is not. Hear me when I say this. The Lord's Day coming together is the communion of saints. It is that glorious moment where we get ounces of foretastes of heaven, where we gather with the saints of God, we sing and worship together. Is that sweet to your soul? Is it the gathering on the Lord's Day is something that you look forward to, that you on with the saints of God and singing the praises of our King? The Lord's Day is for the communion of saints to worship. And brothers and sisters, this is the sweetest means of response to the gospel. And he is saying it is to worship Christ and to worship Him not as something that is ritualistic to us, but birthed from love. Birthed from love. Men and women, why? You know this. You know when you go and perhaps it is your spouse has asked you to do something and you do it out of a sense of obligation. Perhaps it is dishes. And you go in there, you do the dishes, all the while begrudging the fact that you are doing the dishes. Maybe break a pot. Um, And is there not something so dynamically different then when you go in out of love and affection, perhaps it is that your husband or wife is late getting home and you wash the dishes out of a place of pure affection. Is that not all the sweeter? Not only to the one whom you are serving, but to the one who is giving the service. It is a blessing. Worship that is not birthed from love is not worship. I don't know what it is. I mean, I could not put a name on it, but there's no way that we can look in the clear teaching of Scripture and say that one singing the praises of Christ without having an affection for Him is worship. As a matter of fact, throughout the prophets, God condemns this. If we are to worship Christ and worship Him rightly, we do so out of a birthplace of love and affection for Him. We are to be people who worship because we love the Lord. We go on to say this in verse, uh, in verse 14. I will pay my vows to the Lord in the presence of His people. And you can go on, we can press on there. And it says, uh, O Lord, I am your servant. I am your servant, the son of your maidservant. You have loosed my bonds. I will offer to you the sacrifice of thanksgiving and call on the name of the Lord. I will pay my vows to the Lord in the presence of all His people. In the courts of the house of the Lord, in your midst, O Jerusalem, praise the Lord. And this last one is so incredibly interesting. It is a public proclamation. Have you noticed that we cannot help but speak of that which we love? I mean, you know everybody in the room. Perhaps it is that you attend a Sunday school class here, which you should, and you know, very likely, you know of every single person in that room, you know their favorite football team. You do, because they will not stop talking about it. Or perhaps it is you know their favorite restaurant. You know, um, perhaps even you, you, you know what's going on in the lives of their children because they talk of them, they speak of them. Brothers and sisters, what we speak of is always birthed from what we love. And it's very interesting to me that if you would like to go to a place where it's very unlikely for Christian conversation to be had, the number one place you can find that is more likely than not the church. What an incredible, incredibly, I mean, just perverse thing. When we come together, when saints are together, how is it that we can speak of anything but our Lord? It's almost as though you have to force a conversation. I'll never forget being at a men's banquet. The whole purpose was for men to gather, to celebrate Christ together. We sit down at the table. They, they, they said before men sat down, hey, we want you to discuss the things of the Lord. I have never been in a room more quiet. Never. If they would have permitted anything else to be discussed, it would have been loud, it would have been rambunctious. But should you say, only speak of Christ, only speak of the glories of God, then you would find a very, very quiet room. Men and women who love the Lord speak of Him, and they do so boldly. It is not as though we go, in the, we go into certain situations and scenarios and we begin to scream and proclaim, but brothers and sisters, if you get the opportunity to speak of Christ, it should thrill your soul. People should be a bit weirded out about your enthusiasm. Like an Alabama fan. You should walk into a room and people should think to, your, to themselves, ah, he's going to speak of Jesus. But I find that very rarely is that the case. 
And I will confess to you my own infirmities here. I find that my soul can be enthused and it can be affectionate for all of the things the world has to offer. And it is often slow in affection for Christ, which is why I speak of him so little. This is sin and it needs to be mortified. It needs to be put to death. The greatest joy of the Christian's life is to, and through the midst of trial and tribulation, meditate on the person of God and delight in Him, to look to the person of Christ and celebrate our salvation in Him, and because of the salvation that He has provided Him, love Him with a dear and forever eternal affection that can never be stamped out, that sin can never um, overshadow that when we look to Christ and in our affection for Him, we worship loudly, that we gladly sing the praises of Christ together, that we look forward to the Lord's day, that we get to gather with the saints and sing loudly the praises of Christ together, that we speak of Him often and that we delight to serve Him. And the last thing that we should delight to do is die in Him. Listen to this text. You've heard precious. It started with the psalmist fearing. The snares of death encompass me. It is something that he is mortified by. It is something that he fears. Listen to how the language has changed. Listen to how amidst him praying to the Lord, deliver my soul. Listen to how he, as he meditates on the graciousness, the mercifulness, and the righteousness of the God whom he serves, as he thinks about his goodness and his ability to save, knowing that throughout the expanse of eternity he will walk on ground that will not be shaken nor give way before the Lord in the land of the living, he then echoes... Precious in the sight of the Lord is the death of His saints. Can we say the same? Can we say as death looms, as perhaps it is indeed imminent, can we say precious? Matthew Henry says this in regard to this statement, Let it be precious to us which is so precious to God. Remember, brothers and sisters, that as... We live our lives here below as we endure trials and tribulations, as we come together to sing the praises of Christ, as we speak of Him here. They are but foretastes. The reason that we can celebrate precious is the death of the saints in the eyes of the Lord is because we know to be absent from the body is to be present with the Lord. It's the whole reason that Paul wrestles. I know it's better. It's better to go and to be with Christ. This is incredible, isn't it? That he says to live as Christ, to die as gain. That he is actually having difficulty deciding between, and not even really having a difficulty deciding. He's saying death is better. May we all look to our grave with a bit of anticipation. For it is not an end. It is not a separation. It is simply the day that we close our eyes to open it to our, the faithful lover of our soul.